What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mike Janella Show. I'm Mike, obviously, and joining me this week, he is a man of many talents. He is a comedian, a TV personality, a killer of hecklers, and most recently, the CEO, named as such, of Laugh Factory Productions, a very funny guy, Steve Hofstetter. Steve, what's going on? Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Better now. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm very tired. I need more sleep. Uh, don't we all? Uh, now, you probably more than me. I think I'm on 10 hours of sleep from last night, so I'm rested and refreshed. Um, but no, we got a lot to talk about uh, with you today, Steve. Uh, a lot I wanted to cover. Um, but first, I mean, you're a comedian. You're a funny guy. Make me laugh. Tell me a joke. Uh, that's the worst no. thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask somebody, Do you? how often do you get that? Like people introducing you at dinner parties or to friends uh, that, like people can't still be doing that, right? Oh yeah, it, it definitely happens. I think that it's you know I guess it's not as common the more successful you get because you know people aren't as big a jerks to you in general because then <laughs> they you know want something from you. But uh, I think I think it's a standard dumb response to someone. You know the same way that like if you find out someone's a doctor and you immediately be like, Oh, do we'll talk. Look at this. It's you're an idiot. Right. Check out this mole on my shoulder. Like what's the deal with that? Yeah, exactly. That's terrible. If I I were a doctor and people did that to me, like immediately I would just look at them just stone faced and be like, Oh my God, you're dying. (laughs) You have three days left to live. Enjoy every moment. Um, No, I I won't make you do anything like that. But uh, what I will make you do, Steve, I do this with everybody that comes in the show because I like getting started on a good foot. So tell me what's the best thing that happened to you in the past week? Uh, best thing that happened to me was uh, definitely becoming CEO of Laugh Factory Productions. <laughs> I mean, that's something that like I knew was in the works for a little while, and it was really nice when it actually became official and became a thing, and we could announce it. And you know, now we're getting all kinds of amazing content. We just released our first video uh, for the new revamped YouTube channel, which is a Mikey Winfield video, and he's super funny, and it's doing really, really well. And uh, we're going to work on daily videos from that. So it's it's uh, it's a it's a super exciting new frontier for me. Yeah, it's awesome. And something that I said at the top of the show was freshly announced. We're recording this on a Wednesday. You made the announcement, I think, just yesterday. Um, so very pumped for you, man, because this is something that I think is super exciting. Not only do you get to do your own stuff, but now you kind of get to be the emperor major domo of a very good brand name that can just really keep blowing up. Because this isn't an unknown thing. People know the Laugh Factory. Are you excited, worried, anxious? What are your feelings about taking this thing sort of to to the next level now that it's all in your lap? Can excited, worried, anxious be one word? Yeah, then, I think yes. so. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think I'm actually not really very worried. Um, I'm definitely excited and definitely anxious. Um, I think there's a difference in anxious and worried because I'm anxious to find out the good results. But I don't think anything will be bad. We're, we're already achieving successes um, you know, already inked the deal just, I mean, it's only been, this is the third day and, you know, we're already working on developing some stuff with satellite radio where I already inked a deal with a distributor to do new content on Spotify and Pandora and things like that. So it's uh, it's really been exciting. There's the ceiling is so much higher than the laugh factory productions, you know, than it was reaching before. And so to be able to create new content for comedy fans, to be able to create new opportunity for comedians, it's going to be great. There are 400,000 subscribers on the YouTube already. And, you know, my goal is to up that to a million within a year. 
Well, hey, dude, if you need an out-of-work former sportscaster slash current podcaster, uh, I know a guy, so just let me know if you yeah. need more content filled. <laughs> uh, you have my number. Um, all right, Steve, I do want to talk to you about sort of uh, how you got into the industry and all the nuts and bolts of it. But first, I wanted to talk about kind of comedy today. It's the reason I wanted to have you on, and I told you this, too, because we are less than 48 hours away from you and I having Donald J. Trump as our president officially. It's inauguration week. And I've seen your set, and you definitely don't shy away from political commentary. Uh, so I guess my first question for you is, uh, A, can you believe that this is real life yet? And B, how do you think comedy, and now as someone who's a CEO of sort of a brand that has to produce more comedy and and for the people over the next four years, what's what's comedy going to look like now under this guy? I'm sorry, I'm unfamiliar with this gentleman. What did you say his name was? So he has this popular Twitter account, right? His name is okay. Donald uh, J. Trump, and people retweet him once in a while. He's on TV occasionally, and he's going to be running our country in about 48 hours. So, I, so yeah, he, that, so he's like a he's like a Vine star, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Un unfortunately, yeah. Vine has gone away. I don't think this guy will be. <laughs> oh, I'm just trying to pretend it's not happening. Oh, uh, it's tough. I like what I want to know is. The the Trump supporters, when like what does he have to do to lose their support? Because those that voted for him based on the drain the swamp thing, obviously he has done the opposite of that. Um, it's like if he went up and he did all the stuff he promised to do, I wouldn't like it, but at least I would respect it. But instead, he's just doing other bad things. You know what I mean? Like he like he promised bad things. And then people were like, we like those bad things. And then he, he's not even in office yet, and he's doing other bad things instead. And so the left doesn't like him, and I figure the right shouldn't either, uh, but I guess they still do. Like, I want to know at what point, like, are, were people so anti-Hillary? Like, if Donald Trump came in and, like, slapped your mother across the face— would you just be like, look, you know, we just we want to shake things up in our household. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with how he did it, but you know, something needed to be done. So, well, I, I just yeah. this is the same guy. Don't forget who on the campaign trail said he could probably shoot someone in the face right on Fifth Avenue, and people would applaud him for it. So I think he knows kind of what he's working with here in terms of people just blindly accepting whatever he's doing. Absolutely, it's and it's it's frightening. I kind of liked uh, so. I'm a little bit in love with uh, Anonymous. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with their methods, but I think m the vast majority of what they've done has been very, like, fun, vigilante <laughs> justice. Like, you know, when they're fucking with Boko Haram and they're, you know, like, there's a lot of stuff that they do that I really appreciate. And yesterday they came out and said, uh, the next four years are going to be very difficult for you. You're like, I know what you did last summer, basically. So I'm very curious to see how that develops. How is it... How's it affected you at all? Because you're touring all over the country. You go to a lot of quote unquote Trump states or you're in a lot of Hillary sections as well. Have you changed your your routine or your set at all? Because I'm sure you're getting reactions from people that span the whole spectrum depending where you go. Well, the main way it's affected me is that it's lit a fire under me as an artist. You know, it, it reminded me that there's a lot that needs to be said that isn't being said or isn't being said enough. And so, you know, I, I went up on stage the day and a lot of comedians are doing a very dumb and bad thing where they're just up there being like, Trump sucks. It's like, okay, but you're a comedian. 
So your job is to make us laugh about how he sucks. So the the thing I've been trying to do is I've been trying to, I'm not going up there and just doing, you know, reactionary crap. Like I'm going up there and trying to not do anti-Trump material, but do pro-progressive material, mm. which I think that there's a big difference. Well, because that's a thing, and I read a very good critique, I forget where it was, maybe Vulture or someone, about how SNL in particular wasn't doing a great job with their Trump comedy because it wasn't really satire, it wasn't biting, it's just making fun of superficial stuff, his tan, his hair, his accent, and all that's going to do is enrage his supporters and not really get anyone any smarter or any more educated or informed than they were before, it's got to be tough. I assume that's the way to do it is what you're kind of talking about is being a little bit more biting and informative and educational. But that's got to be hard to do, right? Because the punchlines are so there. It's easy, low-hanging fruit to just make well, fun of this guy on the surface. I don't think you need to necessarily be you know, biting, informative, or educational. I just think you need to be funny. Mm. You know, I, I think the... I think some of the SNL stuff has been absolutely fantastic. And yeah, there's some low-hanging fruit also. But I think there's a difference between a wonderful tiny hands joke and someone just going up there just being like, I don't like him. Like, that's what I mean. You know, it's, okay. it's funny, funny first in order to reach people. Because the fact is, even if people are only laughing at his tan or only laughing at his hair or only laughing at his tiny, tiny child hands, you know, they're still able to he's not this untouchable king and that's the problem the you know the problem in politics becomes when people are beyond reproach and for a lot of his fans he is beyond reproach and that's what needs to change are you fearful at all that that won't change or that it'll be tough to do over these next four years sort of what's your what's your biggest fear of the direction of comedy i guess i could say uh, under his well watch? i mean my, my biggest fear is that it's hard to do stand-up in a post-apocalyptic wasteland but, uh, you know, I, I think that, honestly, I, I, I think my biggest fear is some sort of censorship culture. When I say censorship, censorship culture, I don't mean, you know, actual government censorship. I mean the idea of you can't say that, you know, people like people trying to do the censorship for each other or for you. Um, and that would hurt comedy. Comedy is the most uncensored art form, and I believe it is the last thing that will be censored. So if comedy starts to be, and that's on both ends too, because the reaction to the right has become, you know, the PC police, and that's not okay either. So I think there needs to be, there needs to be a middle ground. That's the last thing I would want as a comedy fan is you or any comedian putting materials together and thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that because it's going to anger this person. Like, we, we can't have those those reins on the horse uh, for me. So I can imagine for you, that's got to be something you're you're very worried about other people having to do in your industry. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, all we can really do as comedians is do our thing and do it the best way possible and hope our audience comes to us. Yeah. All right. Well, that will let's put a bow on the political stuff because I'm going to get depressed uh, the deeper we go down this hole. Uh, it should be a fun four year or an interesting four years, I should say, uh, if nothing else. Um, I want to talk to you, Steve, about and I talked to a lot of people on the show about kind of how they got to where they are and uh, their industry in general. So comedy, stand up, obviously you, you've branched out to a whole bunch of different stuff, TV and writing, uh, which is a first love of yours. And now you're producing and all this kind of stuff. But how did you go from, what was the process? How do you go from 
you know, even I've done amateur nights and, you know, at the local bar, that kind of stuff. How do you go from someone doing that consistently or working smaller circuits to making an actual career and a living out of this? What's that? Where's your tipping point? What's the inflection point from this is a fun hobby? I think I'm good at it to this is what I am. Well, I mean, I think that the actual tipping point is when you can pay your rent. But the uh, I mean, for me, the this is what I am moment came when. I was, uh, so I was performing at, um, MIT, which was about six months in. And I wasn't saying I was a comedian. I was saying I was a writer who did comedy. And then, uh, the first two comics went up and they both kind of ate it. And I was standing there kind of waiting in the wings, wanting to go up, even though the crowd was terrible. And that's when I realized like, oh damn, I actually, you know, as a, as a sports fan, there's that phrase, winners want the ball. Um, that was when I realized I actually wanted the ball. I always wanted to be, you know, on deck in the bottom of the ninth when someone else hit the game winning home run. <laughs> I'm there for the celebration, but not for the nerve wracking exactly. step in the batter's the, box. The whole like, hold me back, hold me back, <laughs> let me at him, you know, yeah, you, know yeah. you, can't, you can't really fight. Uh, you know, I think I, but with comedy, it's actually something where, you know, I got to the point where I'm like, all right, you know, this crowd might be garbage, but I'm going to get them. You know, that's my job. Yeah, MIT does not sound like a, a real hot crowd for comedy on the surface. Well, you know, it, it definitely can be. Um, but these particularly people were, were very sad people. Um, and, you know, they just I think they just weren't into the show. But I, you know, I got them because I, you know, I didn't let them I didn't let them get to me. So there's this, uh, I won't say truism, because maybe it's not true, but this old kind of wives' tale that every person who gets into comedy, particularly stand-up, I should say, is there because of some hardship or insecurity that this is all just kind of a mask, the comedy. Is that true? Uh, I don't think so. I think that sense of humor is defense mechanism. That's true. But it doesn't have to be you know, we're not dark and disturbed as much as we just went through something. Sometimes you go through something and you come out the other side and you're okay. You know, sometimes you go through something and then you're absolutely not okay. And then you need comedy to prevent you from crying into your pillow every night. Um, but that ain't me. So you think it's possible to be a, a happy, well-adjusted comic and that you kind of fit that bill? Uh, I like to think so. I hope so. <laughs> Cause I mean, it's gotta be, I mean, it's still gotta be a tough life, right? I mean, you're, whether you're staying at like the days in, in Greenville or you can't maintain friendships or relationships, or you're just eating terrible food on the road all the time. I mean, this is not an easy life. So what, what is the draw? Is it just, just the laughs that time on stage? Is that what makes it all worthwhile for you? Oh, the, the first year on the road, would I have loved to have stayed in the days in, in green in Greenville? <laughs> um, but the, uh, you know, the thing, I, I guess it is difficult, but Tom Cotter told me a great story once about how, you know, he was, uh, he was very upset and kind of down in his life about being a comic and he had a, you know, he had a drive to this and that and et cetera, et cetera. And he's driving in the middle of the snow and he hates his drive and he's creeping along and then he sees a tow truck driver or tow truck operator or whatever, probably driver. I, I don't think they go with a two man crew, uh, probably a driver <laughs> who is hooking up a car. He's in the snow in like 10 degree weather on his back under some car. And he realizes, huh, maybe my problems aren't that bad. 
And a lot of it is about keeping it in perspective. And for for all the time that, you know, I check into my hotel and the heater's broken or, you know, my flight is delayed or, you know, someone in the airport is next to me watching a YouTube video with no headphones because they're an asshole who doesn't understand basic decency. Bottom five worst humans on earth are those people or on subways or buses, any anywhere like that. It's It's so it's so frustrating. And you know what? There have been times where I've been in public and I didn't have headphones and there was something I had to listen to. And you know what I do? I put the volume super quiet and I listen to it like it's a phone call. Not that hard. Not that hard to do. Absolutely not. So anyway, point is, Every time that happens, I think about the idea of would I be happier in a nine to five? And I absolutely wouldn't. So similarly, because that's the trade off, right? Nine to five, you can at least, you know, when you clock out, that's the end of it. You can go home, slippers, beer, you have your weekends, whatever. Working in media, especially comedy, you're never off, right? Like I imagine every situation you're in in life, 24 hours a day, can be mined for material. Do you ever switch off that? comedian switch or is that just go go nonstop for you well i mean there's plenty of times where i don't crack a joke but i'm always noticing things i mean that's part of being a comic you are when you're a comic you're the type of person who just sees the the idea of a good joke is you see what everyone else sees but you understand its context differently and so The example I like to use is, let's say there's a big protest on the news, and they're protesting something awful, and there's some guy in the middle of the protest who's like eating a sandwich. All I can see is the guy eating the sandwich. Mm. Like, everyone else, because it's anachronistic, everyone else who watches it either says, oh, I agree with those protesters, or oh, those people don't know what they're talking about, and I watch it going... This guy's just sitting there eating a sandwich in such a tense moment. Do you see how ridiculous that is? And so that's what it is being a comic, and that is that is something I cannot shut off, nor do I want to. Right, which is what I meant, yeah. Not, I wasn't trying to paint you as someone that's always trying to rip off one-liners, yeah. even at funerals. Uh, I meant more like the the mind's always looking about, oh, that would make a good bit. Oh, I mean, I've also done that, but <laughs> the, you know, but the, I mean, the, the key is to... I guess, you know, to know when it's appropriate, know when it's not. And it's not the somber, it's not how somber something is that makes it appropriate or not appropriate. It's about like who you're around. Are you breaking up tension or are you just trying to serve your own ego, et cetera? Which is a very fine line that a lot of people, myself included, usually end up on the wrong side of. Um, so yeah. what's the physical process then? Say you're you're watching this protest on the news, to use your example, and you see the guy eating the sandwich. Are you the kind of guy who carries an old school notepad in your pocket? Do you keep notes on your iPhone? Like what's the process of putting a set or a routine together from the germination of an idea, some inspiration you get to eventually telling a joke in front of 200 people at some comedy club? Well, uh, you know, there are a couple of different parts of the process, depending. Um, Sometimes I'll jot the idea down in, in notes on my phone. I do not bring a notepad around me. Uh, around with me because it is Um, 2017 (laughs) absolutely i do not bring a notepad around with me because it's 2011 so uh, (laughs) um but i you know so sometimes i jot down a note and sometimes i just sit down in front of my computer and i'm just like well this is what i want to talk about and let me find a way to make that funny is there ever what's your sort of self-censorship because 
like for me, and I, I mentioned it briefly, my comedy experience, I've done three open mic nights uh, in New York to like crowds of eight or nine. Uh, and even when I was putting together just a baby five minute set, there was so much time where I think, man, this joke is killer. And then I'd revisit it the next day and I would say, no, that joke is trash. And I would get so self-doubting on what I would be doing. You obviously are a million times more of a professional uh, than I could ever dream to be in this industry, but how much do you still self-doubt? Like, do you get in front of that computer and think, man, I'm just, that's, that's not funny. I'm, I'm just terrible right now. How much do you go no, through? If, if I think something's funny once, I'm going to think it's funny until the crowd tells me I'm wrong. Okay, interesting. Because, and if the crowd tells you you're wrong, you have to be willing to believe them. That's something that, like, I, there are comics who, you don't know my genius. You guys just don't get me. <laughs> this joke got laughs one time, and it's like, okay, well, that was one time. So when you when you chase the ghosts of past laughs, that's a huge problem. Um, but if you're willing to, and there have been jokes where I'm like, I swear this is funny, and they don't like it. And I'm just like, damn it, I guess it's only funny to me. And, you know, I have to be willing to let it go. And then there are some times where I do a joke where I'm like, this is pretty good, and people love it. So it's hard to predict. Uh, you just have to do it. And then you get to that point where you're so famous, some people, that they'll laugh at literally anything. I mean, I've been to shows where people are guffawing, and I'm just sitting there like, wow, only, just to name a name, like only Chris Rock could get away with this because of that sort of equity in that bank. Whereas if you're just starting out, sometimes you don't get that, that leash. Uh, have you found that leash get longer for you as you get a little more notoriety? Um, I mean, that leash definitely gets longer as more of my people come to shows. Like when I do a random comedy club, uh, you know, just to, and, and people who are just regulars of that club also show up, I don't have that leash with them. But if I do like a rock venue where the only people buying tickets are like my fans, you know, then I'm kind of allowed to do whatever I want. Um, Chris Rock actually does this amazing thing where when he's working on a new set, he'll do 10 minutes of garbage on purpose up front so that it kind of gets that out of the way. And then he can, tr he tries the new good jokes to see if they're actually good. Uh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool, I mean, he doesn't do it every time, but he's been known to do that. Right. Well, if you do it every time, then people know what to expect and that would ruin the yeah. whole uh, placebo effect. Um, exactly. Interesting. Um, I, I do want to talk to you as well, Steve, because you're speaking of notoriety, you kind of got a lot of yours when you started out doing comedy uh, from all the heckling and you still do that. The hecklers, you know, they shout out during your show. You take your little sip of water from your cup and you're you're loading <laughs> up the holster and then you just you rip them. And the YouTube videos have done tremendously. Uh, you've done plenty of press about this, so I won't belabor the point. Um, but has there ever I wanted to ask you this. Has there ever been a heckler or a back and forth that you've gotten in with an audience member where you're like, oh, actually, this guy's pretty good? Because uh, normally the people are just, they are so ill-equipped uh, to battle you in a battle of wits. But have you ever not met your match, but I guess met your match with a heckler? Well, let me ask you this. When you were working for the Padres and you saw like a fan run on the field, was there ever a moment where you're like, that guy could play first base? <laughs> so it's that drastic. It's not that, it's not that even close at all. Absolutely. Okay. Someone who is dumb enough and unself-aware enough to heckle is never smart enough to heckle well. Well put, succinct. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, heckle story, a decimation and an evisceration that you keep uh, closer to your heart than all the others? Uh, yeah, and it's not on tape. Um, Ooh. 
my my the, favorite the hospital one. personal collection <laughs> uh yeah it was one where it was back when i had a flip camera so if i was doing two shows in a night i could only tape one of them um because it would run out of space and so I I taped the early show and then at the late show, you know, the crowd's really great, but there's this one woman who won't shut up during the show. And, you know, I kind of put her down a little bit, nothing too crazy, you know, just she yells something. I go, I don't know what you said. I'm sure it was stupid. And, you know, just little tried and true things that I use. And then at the end of the set, so I haven't done my closer yet. Um, and I do my whole, you know, thanks for coming, you know, come see me and say hi after the show, that whole thing. And... I say something about how I love being a comedian and she yells out, yeah, because it was easy, because it's easy. And that really bothered me. That really, really bothered me. Uh, and so there's that whole thing of, you know, never invite them onto the stage, never give them the microphone. Um, but this is a little different because I knew I hadn't done my closer yet. I knew she was drunk and stupid and I knew that the crowd already hated her. So what I did is I said, I go, all right. You think this is easy? I'll tell you what. You come up here. You do five minutes of material. Then I'll do five minutes of material. And you tell me how easy you think this is. And she starts Sinist walking up. Sinister, knowing that you had your closer still in your back pocket. Sure. But, I mean, she should know that too if she wasn't stupid. So then <laughs> she starts to get up and I go, wait, wait, wait. Let's make this interesting. I'll bet you $100 that, I, that this is not easy. And so she starts to get up and I go, no, no, no. Let me see the money. And the night before, I had actually been paid in $100 bills, which made it so much better. Because <laughs> I was able to take a $100 bill out of my wallet, which I don't think she had ever seen before. <laughs> and so I took $100 out of my wallet, and I like did a little snap in front of the microphone. And, uh, and so she stops, and she goes, well, you know... You know, times have been a little tough lately, and, you know, I don't know if I want to risk losing that much money. So I said, not only are you not good enough at my job to make $100, <laughs> you're not good enough at your job to make $100. <laughs> Brutal! Oh. And the crowd, the crowd lost their mind. It was, it was fun. It was like the end of a. It was like the end of a of a Rocky movie. It was great. Yeah, just like the or Eight Mile. You just be ravaged yeah. dropping the mic. There. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, good stuff. Maybe the only time you'll ever be in earnest compared to Eminem uh, in your craft. But I do that for you. Um, uh, some people have been like, "Hey, he is also white." Uh, that too. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> small small things. Um, all right, Steve. I do want to get to uh, the fun five with you, which is five uh, fun, unique questions designed for you and you alone. That's how we end every show. But first, I do offer every guest this opportunity too to uh, turn the tables. You get to ask me a question if you'd like. Would you like to? Okay. Uh, sure. I'll ask you a question. Um, it's it sucks to you know to lose a job with any organization but ha does it hurt when like the padres say <laughs> is that like um like being, yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's tough be, it's tough to be like being fired as like a substitute bus driver yeah i mean the the good the good news the way that i took it is that they already had gotten rid of you know former all-stars who had made hundreds of millions of dollars throughout the year matt kemp james shields all those kind of guys fernando rodney let him walk so I figure if 
if Matt Kemp can go, then I can go, and I won't feel I won't feel as bad. But uh, yeah, it's not like you know the Yankees or the Red Sox uh, let me go. This was certainly an interesting uh, an interesting feeling. So thanks for you did bringing you did all actually, that up. But you did actually have well, they were just cutting payroll. Um, but you did actually have uh, I think as many walks as Matt Kemp did in May. Yes, and I and you mentioned earlier yeah. about a guy running onto the field. Could he play first base? I think I literally could have played right field almost as well <laughs> as Matt Kemp did at times this year. Um, all right, in case Matt's oh, listening, so I liked you, Matt. Sorry, but I had to give you shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, man, I love it. That's what that's what turn the tables is for. Um, I appreciate it, Steve. All right, uh, you do got to go because you're a busy man. So now it is time for the fun five. Like I said, these are five just quick questions designed just for you. So question number one, and I may know the answer to this based on one of your uh, comedy albums you've released in the past, but uh, maybe the answer has changed over the last couple of years. Who's the one comedian whose success has surprised you the most? Like, who's the one comic you think, how are they successful? How do they have a career? Whether they're not that funny or they just don't have a good brand. Who's the one comic that just continues to baffle you with how well they've done? Well, I mean, your guess is correct. Uh, you know, the, the one that baffled me was Larry the Cable Guy. And the main reason that baffles me is because it's not that, you know, his stuff is, you know, hokey and I don't enjoy it. Uh, it's that he, if it, like, if anyone's a big enough fan about him, they should know his background. Like, when you're a big fan of someone, you know their background. You know, like, I... You know, when you're a big baseball fan, like, you know, players' middle names, you know. So how do his big fans not know that that's just a character he does? And he used to do a character where he was an old lady and he used to do a like an old Jewish lady. And there was another character he did where he was a gay guy. And like, how how can his fans enjoy his homophobia and racism in the material and not realize that, like, Dan Whitney, who plays him, is not that at all. Like, once you're a big enough fan, wouldn't you know that? So it's it's surprising. Let's flip it then for question number two. Uh, on the positive side, if you could only listen to one comics material the rest of your life, old, new, anything, I only subject you to one. Who's the one comedian that you would most want to keep on repeat the rest of your life? Oh, it's so difficult because, I mean, Hedberg stuff is so silly and enjoyable. Um, but he doesn't have a ton of it. So, you know, you want to pick someone with, I think with a catalog that has a little bit more breadth. So I would say, I'd say that it would have to be Carlin because he has so many different albums that by the time you're done with the 19th or whatever it is, you know, you can scroll back to the first and the jokes won't seem quite as familiar. That whenever someone asks me a version of this question, what's the one song you want to listen to forever? The one artist you always got to think about volume because if you run out of stuff quickly, you're going to be pulling your hair out soon enough. Um, yeah. All right. So with 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 both answers, and one of the thing, one of the reasons why Carlin works is you also want to think about difference in moods. And so Carlin has you know light fun material, and he also has like darker stuff too. You know, similar to, you know, I'd want, I'd probably, if I would say any music artist, I would say the Beatles, just because, you know, similar thing, tons of volume and, and lots of different type of stuff. Right. I want to hold your hand to anything on Revolver or Let It Be, you get your whole spectrum covered. Um, exactly. Question number three. Uh, for those who don't know about you, you've alluded to it multiple times throughout the show. You're a huge sports uh, nut and you grew up a Mets fan like I did. So that's why you're always good in my book. So if you could spend one night out with any Mets player ever. Who would it be? Ooh, 
That is a difficult question. Because there's so many good options. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Willie Mays? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a loophole, but it's fair. It's legal. It's a good answer if that's what you want to go with. The Mets, uh, he was an all-star for the Mets. <clears throat> so, you know, I think, I think you know, when you think all-time greats, I'd say Willie Mays. That's a good answer. I, I think I'd always go with Keith Hernandez, just because the stories he could tell. And you know you're getting into any bar anywhere you want with him uh, oh, absolutely. in New York. Uh, question four. You do a lot of college campus touring. What's the weirdest proposition you've ever received from a, a student on campus? Um, I don't know about weirdest proposition, but definitely like most overt. Um, I had a <clears throat> so and this is when I was married. Um, I had a female student come up to me after a show and, you know, she starts to ask me questions about, uh, you know, traveling, which I get all the time. You know, she's like, oh, you know, are you in town for a couple of days? Are you, you know, touring elsewhere in the area? And I think that's fine. You know, so I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm here. Um, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm here tonight. And then, you know, I go to Jersey tomorrow or whatever it was. And then. She was like, oh, you know, what do you usually do after shows? And I was like, ah, you know, I usually just, you know, kind of kick back in, in my hotel room and just kind of relax. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I have a, I'd love to talk to you more about comedy. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, you can ask me, you know, whatever question you'd like. And she's like, no, you know, I just, I just think it'd be, you know, really nice to like, you know, just kind of hang out and, uh, you know, talk about comedy. And this is in front of like a bunch of other students and the people who booked me. And I just go, yeah, any question you'd like to ask me, if you could ask me right here and now, <laughs> I'd be happy to answer it. But that is where I will answer questions. Uh, and then she just kind of, you know, sheepishly walked away. Uh, you know, there, there are so many, and you said you were married at the time. I'm sure so many single comics up and coming who would kill for to be in those situations. But again, it's all about the mood. Um, question five. So you do have performed a lot of places, but what is your dream venue if i can give you a sold out set anywhere in the world where would you most want to perform oh my god uh i mean there's so many amazing venues but okay sold out um city field <laughs> okay <laughs> if i could perform to you know 45,000 people uh at city field i mean that would be kind of amazing so let me let me say that all right nice would you have rather if shea stadium was still standing would you have rather perform at shea Sure, it'd give me yeah. so much material. <laughs> oh, I miss it. The old mezzanine, the red seats, where I'd be spending so much of my youth. Um, uh, all right. I had a, I actually have a pair of the, um, and I'm going to be the jerk that corrects you right now. Mezzanine was the green. Upper You're deck. right. Upper deck was the red. Yeah, it was loge, yeah. then mezzanine, then upper deck. You're right. Yeah, with yeah, field at the bottom. Yeah. And I have a pair of upper deck seats that I bought when they were destroying Shea Stadium. And my brother bought a pair of seats too. And they were all the same price. But he bought a pair of the orange of field level. And I was like, what the hell do you know from field level? We grew up in the red. <laughs> by the red seat. He finally wanted to sit in the orange seats for the first time yeah. in his life. I think I only, I only sat in the oranges once, I think. My dad just could not afford those tickets. But the reds, man, that's where, that's where I spent some days. Um, Steve Hofstetter, thank you so much, man. Uh, plug what you want to plug. You've got the Your Tour, which I think is so cool what you're doing. You announced a VR special at CES a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where can people find you? Where can they find out about this stuff? Uh, plug whatever you want to plug, man. Uh, okay, so first of all, with the Laugh Factory stuff, uh, check out the Laugh Factory's YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash the Laugh Factory. 
And uh, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, you can go to youtube.com slash the Hofstetter. And I am touring 65 cities, 18 countries. The tour actually kicks off tonight. So perfect timing. Um, unless you don't post this until tomorrow. I will post uh, it today. Don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, either way, it's fine. It's uh, So I'm doing all that stuff. You can check that out on my website. Uh, you could just Google Steve Hofstetter and it'll it'll bring you right there. And incredible stuff. That tour is going to be amazing. I'm I'm looking forward to it for you. And uh, hopefully I'll be back on the East Coast when you swing through. And uh, maybe I'll go check some show out. Steve, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Happy to talk to you. Take care, Mike. All right. And to all of you listening, thanks for listening. Make sure to head to MikeJanella.com to find all of Steve's social media handles. I'll have all the links there for you. Also, past episodes of my show, plus all the info you need on the amazing outro music you're hearing right now. All right. Thanks again to Steve Hofstetter for joining. And thanks to you guys for listening. We'll try and do better next time. See ya.